you have your Bible, uh, and I hope you do, three places. Uh, Psalms 38 is where we're actually going to be for the majority of our time, almost all of our time. Uh, I'll probably send us to the book of Isaiah just to look at a few passages that relate the same principle. And then Hebrews chapter 12, obviously. If you know about Psalms 38. So there's seven psalms that we're about to pray. As I'm just giving you time to find them. There's seven psalms that are known as the penitential psalms. And so all seven of those communicate repentance or a penitent heart. And so Psalms 38 is one of these particular psalms. So if you have those marked with something, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Your heart's ready. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, tonight. Thank you for our opportunity uh, to gather together in your name. Thank you that we have a copy of the word that you have spoken to your people. And Father, I pray that we would have just a growing and burning desire to not only know your word, but to also live in light of the truths that we find in your word. So as spirit-filled people, I pray that your spirit would be kind to us tonight and give us discernment. Help us to see the principles Meditate on those. Let them just marinate in our hearts and our minds and allow those truths to become a part of who we are as the children of God and allow these truths to bear fruit in our lives for your glory. Uh, so help us, Father. Make sense of my words, empower them, and help them to penetrate uh, our stubbornness and our sinfulness that we all cling to. All this we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let me just point you around a little bit in Psalms 38 before we read it. Uh, David is absolutely broken of heart. You can see that in a number of places. His sin that is resting in him is, well, the effect of it has been very deep. If you'll notice the second part of verse 8, he makes this statement, I groan because of the agitation of my heart. So this is certainly no small thing. The depth is just is affected David as deeply as it can possibly affect him. And not only that, the breadth of this thing is immeasurable. Look at verse 17. He says, I'm ready to fall. My sorrow is continually before me. And then the second half of verse 18, I am full of anxiety. So now you've got to think about a moment in your life where all that's going on. I mean, he's just raked emotionally and spiritually. He's filled with this thing. He can't get it out of his mind. He can't get it out of his heart. It is just making him physically sick. And we'll see that in here. A lot of commentators take this passage and say, the Lord had disciplined David with leprosy, which is funny. You don't do that. You don't do more than what the text does with it. We do as much as the text does, but we don't go beyond the text. Plus that, there's never a sign that David, I'm sure he had his days when he was physically sick. There never was a time that we're made aware that David had leprosy or any kind of life-threatening illness like that. And it becomes pretty clear that David is trying to relate what is going on inside of him with physical metaphors. 
he talks about his deep and profound sickness that's just just attacking his whole body, okay? So we can't turn those in physical things. If we did that, then we'd make the error of going, well, every time I'm physical sick, the Lord must be disciplining me. And that's not true. Paul was sick. Timothy was sick and those sort of things. Uh, Paul was beaten to death. So you can't say, okay, all physical problems equals God's discipline. You don't want to dismiss that altogether, but you can't make those things equal. But what you can make equal, and I think it's a very fair statement, when we're emotionally tormented of heart, we've got to pay attention dearly to what the Spirit of God is trying to show us in those moments. Now, this has affected David just beyond David. If you'll notice how his friends and his family have responded, look up in verse 11. He says, My loved ones and my friends stand aloof or far off from my plague. My kinsmen also stand far off. So whatever is going on in his life has caused his family and his friends to do one of two things. Either they don't want to say anything to him about it, which is a horrible thing for family and friends to do, especially when we're in our sin, or they've shunned him for it, which is another horrible thing that family and friends have a tendency to do. Now, obviously, we'll get into this, but you never come alongside of them and justify that. I mean, there's only one biblical way for us to respond as family and friends when someone we love falls into sin, and that's to come alongside of them, explain to them their sin, but we don't leave their side. We walk alongside of them as they do battle with sin. You never want to not say anything. That's not loving. That's foolish. We don't let our two-year-old children just go their own way without discipline and instruction. Neither should we, and Rob talked about this morning, gently correcting, neither do we let our friends go their own way into sin. That's not loving at all. But at the same time, you never want to treat them like they have a plague and never go around them. But whatever they were doing, it's affected David's heart because his family and friends are doing one of these two things. Secondly, and as always will be, the enemy has supplied those in his life that are trying to harm him. Look at verse 12. Those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction. They devise treachery all day long. And so everyone in David's life is bringing harm and not doing the things that are necessary to help him in his struggle against sin. Now, here's my question for you, and there's a lot of questions that I'm just going to pin up on your mind and let you wrestle with these particular things because this psalm raises a whole lot of questions because you've got to take it to the depth of you wrestling with your own sin. So if, if none of the physical things that David's described are really physical, they're more metaphors for what's going on spiritual, could it not be said that his enemies as well are spiritual and not physical? In fact, when I think of David as being king, who in the world is going to lay a snare for a king and not fear for losing their head? I know David had enemies. He had very real enemies in his kingdom. But most of those enemies come in the form of his own son and those who were following him at the time that God was disciplining him for his sin with Bathsheba. Now what you don't need to do is read Bathsheba into this psalm. Because David sinned more than once, and he had struggles with all of his sin, just like we do. So you don't take Bathsheba and throw it in the midst of this 
and go, well, it's talking about those physical enemies. I don't think it is. I think we need to realize that we have an enemy that seeks to do more damage to us than any physical enemy could ever do. And he does spiritual things in our lives to cause us. Now, there are some good things that you can find here in the midst of David's sin. If you'll look with me in verse 16, and again, I'll read all this in just a second. I'm just trying to outline it for you. Notice the second part of verse 16 where he says, When my foot slips. So this is something that's taken a hold of David's life, but he references as him slipping into this thing, and it hasn't changed who he is as a whole, because if you look with me down to verse 20, the second part of verse 20, they oppose me because I follow what is good. In other words, this sin has not changed the path of David's life but he is in danger of that. And so he wants to come to repentance and make sure that he continues along the good path. And I think that's true of all of us because all of us struggle with things, but it doesn't change the overall perspective of the fact that we want to walk in the good way, in the way of righteousness, right? And so we've got to keep that in mind as well. We do such a good job of kicking one another when we're down, not this church. I'm very thankful for how we've handled public sin in this church and those sort of things. But Christianity as a whole does a very poor job of handling each other when we slip into sin. And we've got to realize their hearts want to glorify God, right? And so we're the ones that need to walk alongside of them and encourage those during those times. So let me ask you some questions. Question number one is what is David's primary concern? Because his family's not doing him right. His friends are not doing him right. His enemies have turned against him. He's physically broken. And I think that's more of a metaphor for spiritually broken. But I think one and two lay out David's greatest fear without question. And when you think about all this stuff, you know, my family, you know, your family turns against you. That's going to break your heart. That's going to cause a lot of anxiety. You get some real enemies or become aware of how Satan is spiritually attacking you. That's a cause for a lot of anxiety. You become physically sick with your sin. Hopefully you do. But David's greatest concern is the response of God. Notice with me in verse 1 or 2. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. Chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. In other words, David says, let me talk about my greatest concern. That I want God to be merciful in spite of the fact that I know He has bared down on me because of the sin in my life. I do not want Him to press too hard. I'll talk about the discipline of the Lord in just a second because we're about to talk to Hebrews 12 about to turn to Hebrews 12. And we never, 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 never want to suffer under the heavy hand of God. And he refers to it as the wrath of God. So what do you do with that? Are you going to dismiss that with the gospel? Are you going to say, well, Romans 8, 1, Rob talked about this morning, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and go, okay, Christ swallowed the wrath of God. Therefore, I cannot face the wrath of God. So you're going to completely dismiss Psalms 38 as insignificant because we're in the new covenant. 
Or are you going to understand that if we continue in our sin, unrepentant, God's going to lay a heavy hand on us. And that should be a terrifying thing. I think the second thing is definitely the way you want to go because you read Paul's words so many times and they come across to us as warnings for those who just continue and continue and continue unrepentant in their sin. We have to be concerned. We're thankful that our Father disciplines us, right? But we also want Him to discipline us and let it be meted out with much grace and forgiveness and not overwhelm us and swallow us. Now, I said we got to be thankful for the discipline of God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to remind you of what our Heavenly Father does for us. As His children. First of all, I'll start in verse 4 just to remind you of something. Hebrews 12, verse 4, You've not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. In other words, we think we've done so much in our battle against our personal sins, but in reality, we've done very little. I mean, have you actually suffered so that you shed blood over your wrestling with your own sin? I would be of the mind that we're so light-hearted and flippant with our sin, we've barely done battle with it at all. It's much easier to point out the sins of others and make remarks about that than it is to square off toe-to-toe -to -toe with our own sin and come what may, let it come, because we're going to root this thing out of our heart and life, right? But the Lord reminds us, you, you just haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood and you're striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, where he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Those are strong words. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers if we're in Christ, but if you're without discipline, you're illegitimate children and you're not sons. Furthermore, we've all had earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good so that we might share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." So we understand from Hebrews 12, 12 very clearly, you can be making your way back to Psalms 38, that God disciplines us. And if He doesn't discipline us, then we do not belong to Him. Now that truth is very simple because you don't discipline your neighbor's kids. If you discipline your neighbor's kids, you're probably going to go to jail for that. You just can't do that as much as you'd like to, right? 
But we do discipline our own kids, and we do discipline those that we're close to. We do discipline the kids uh, within the church family context. We do those sorts of things because we love them very dearly. But we just don't discipline neighbors' kids, and we don't discipline kids you don't know in Walmart. That'll get you in jail really quick because they're not our kids. Therefore, we know we have a Heavenly Father who is filled with nothing more than righteousness and perfection. Everything He does is right. He doesn't simply allow us to go our own way. He's going to discipline us. So here's the question, how? How does He do that? Now that's a question I want you to answer within your own heart because I really want you to be able to answer that. Do you know what forms of discipline God uses and do you know when God is disciplining you? That's a very important question. Because we know that if we're unrepentant in our sin, God is going to discipline us. So what does He do? Does He make us physically sick? Does He make us sneeze? Does He make us get a speeding ticket on the way home? Does He make us have a bad day? Or does He torment and that, I know that's a strong word, but I'm going to say you've been in your sin for a while. Does he torment you spiritually? What does he do? Do you know when he does it? I found this to be true in maturing as slow as I am to mature in my faith. The more that I grow and the closer I get to God, the more sin hurts on the inside. And things that hurt me now, I never really even thought of years ago. What I mean by that is I'm growing a lot more sensitive in my soul as to my own sin. And things that make me call out to God now, I used to never even think about because I, I didn't think it was any big deal. Now I think it's a very big deal. And it's not necessarily things I do, right? I'm not talking about the times that you stub your toe at the barn and say something you shouldn't say and you said it because no one is around. I'm talking about the attitudes of your hearts that never really get expressed with your mouth. We all know that David was as close to God, really. I mean, who else are you going to read in Scripture that had a heart for God like David, right? I mean, he wrote many of the Psalms. And so I would attest that David is as close to really any of us could ever hope to be in his relationship with the Lord. And if that is true, and I think it is, then David sensed things in his life that broke his heart because he was so close to God. It didn't necessarily have to be a particular action that he acted out on. It could have simply been an attitude within his heart that he knew was unhealthy and it was absolutely breaking him because he could not get away from this attitude, whatever it was. So here's my question for you. When, when you do things, let's start there, that are clearly wrong, what goes on inside your heart? How does it affect you? Let me take you a step further. When you think things and dwell on things that you know does not glorify God, how does that affect you? Now, the worst case scenario is it does not affect you. 
And if it does not affect you, you need to be deeply concerned about whether or not you're a child of God. Because the Spirit of God who dwells in you does not ignore what's going on in your heart and life. Secondly, if it does affect you, how do you deal with that? Let me tell you what I've, I've got to be real careful with because I'm really bad at this. There's a certain criteria of things that we have a tendency to go through in the flesh, not in the spirit. And here's what they sound like. Justify, excuse, deflect, ignore, push away. In other words, I know what's going on in my heart that is not healthy, but it's really easy for me to deflect away from me and put the spotlight on somebody else and begin to think about their personal struggles and stop thinking about mine. It's really easy for me to justify. Well, here's why I feel this way. It's because of some offense against me, some thing that I've had to endure physically or emotionally, therefore that's there. So I justify. I excuse. I just put it out of my mind and distract myself by becoming busy rather than rolling up my sleeves and just dealing with the issue at hand. See, when we get to those second tier things and we, we recognize it, we sense the conviction of the Lord, but we're too lazy, we're too hung up on ourselves to actually take a real look at this thing and deal with it and fall on our face before God. That's healthier, obviously, than not sensing conviction at all, but you do realize that's very unhealthy. And I think that's probably what we do the most. We do not understand the depth of sin before a holy God. If we did, how in the world could we ever have worship on Sunday morning because we just couldn't get people off of these steps who are weeping before the Lord because they've got reminded of their sin gathering corporately about to engage in worship and in prayer, but they're so broken over their sin, I just can't get them back into their seats. See, we're not that way at all. I know we've all spent the week in sin, and yet we so easily come in here, sit down, smile, greet, pray, sing, sit before the Word of God, share a few jokes after service, go out to eat lunch together, and right back to same old, same old throughout the rest of the week. I think we're probably operating within that realm somewhere and that's not a healthy place to be. Hopefully you're the type of individual though that's prepared on Saturday night before you come in here on Sunday and your tears have been shed on Saturday night trying to cleanse your heart before you meet corporately and worship God. I hope we're doing that. But I bet you're probably watching the ball game on Saturday night. Right? Or going to a ball game on Saturday night. When is it that we're going to be devastated spiritually over our sin? Because we really need to be if we understand the holiness of God. So now that I've prepared you for that, don't think there's any grave error that's going on with David's life. He does relate it to his foot slipped. 
But I think this language that David is using is coming from a man who is dearly close to God and super sensitive about the attitudes that's going on in his own heart. And he's found one to be unbecoming of a Christian and he's absolutely broken about it. Okay. Let me start in verse one and I'll just read through the whole thing and make a few more comments. O Lord, chasten me not in your wrath. Chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me. Your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my foolishness or folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. My kinsmen stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction. They devise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I'm like a man who doesn't hear and whose mouth are no arguments. For I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, may they not rejoice over me, who, when my foot slips, would magnify themselves against me. For I am ready to fall. My sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity I am full of anxiety because of my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and strong, and many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who repay evil for good. They oppose me because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation." Now, is that a psalm that adequately describes your heart? And I know the answer to that, no. But at the same time, we certainly need to be people like this. We need to weep not so much for the sins of others as for our own sin. And if you currently don't have sin to weep over, you really need this psalm more than the rest of us because there's a great deal of things that we need to weep over in our own personal lives because we're still fallen people. I mean, yes, we've been set free from the bondage of sin, but we haven't yet been set free from the power of sin. So a great amount of our time should be spent on our knees with tears streaming down our face. I'll tell you what, it's a scary, scary way to be, and I found myself more often than I care to tell you, is unable to produce tears over my own sin. Oh, I can, I can bow before God when somebody's sick. 
for when a friend is passing away or when somebody's child is in a hole. You know, I can get tears out pretty quick, but I found it really difficult at a lot of points in my life to squeeze out some tear because of my bad attitude. And that really should be concerning because we've forgotten the goodness that we have in the gospel, that there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. We've forgotten about the holiness of God, and we've forgotten about the command that we're supposed to walk worthy of the calling that we've received. Now, we could give a lot of excuses as to why our hearts have grown cold. We're super busy. Um... We've just got so much to do. We really don't have time for the Lord that we ought to have. Uh, we've become super good at talking our way out of everything and not allowing the Spirit of God to deal with our own hearts. It's just like we can't be quiet. Notice what David says here. Notice verse 13 and 14. I'm like a deaf man who does not hear. I'm like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I'm like a man who doesn't hear and whose mouth throw no arguments, for I hope in you, O Lord. In other words, David is like, I'm not making excuses here. I'm just sitting before you like a mute and deaf man waiting on you to move on my behalf. The only thing that I can do is groan and wail over my own sin. That's all I can do. In fact, he's he kind of lost his words. Look at verse 9. I realize he did use a whole lot describing his physical situation here. But again, I think it's metaphor for spiritual. But look at verse 9. Lord, all my desires before you. In other words, I've said enough. What is it that you don't know? Nothing. You know how I feel. You know what's going on. I've been swallowed by conviction. I need to be set free. What else can I say? I'm just going to sit before you quietly. And I think another good thing that he's sitting before quietly, and this would take us to, what is it? First uh, Peter chapter 2, where the Lord was quiet. But his family, no help. Friends, no help. Enemies, just really setting traps for me. But I'm just going to be quiet. My hope is in you. In other words, he's, uh, he's saying, Lord, rebuke my family. How dare they leave me out here hanging? Lord, rebuke my friends. Lord, please, these enemies. No, I'm just going to sit quietly. My hope is in you. You know all my desire. I pursue what is good, but my foot here is slipped and I'm in the wrong. I say, and I've told you guys this before, if you've ever found somebody in sin whose mouth is closed, it's almost a certainty that the Spirit of God has begun to work. Because until your mouth falls quiet, you're not willing to listen. You just want to offer excuses. You just want to justify. But here David has cried out to the Lord for what's going on in his own personal life. And then he comes to the place where he falls silent before God. Isn't it interesting? Look at verse 1 and then look at verse 22. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, chase me not in your burning anger. Verse 22, make haste to help me, O Lord, my deliverer, my salvation. Isn't it fascinating that the one that terrifies us is the only one who can save us? Kids get this most of the time. 
Because what do they do when you spank them? They want you to hold them. With tears, I mean, you just physically put the belt on their backside. And yet with tears, they're lifting their hands because they know, well, you're also the only one who can comfort me. Right? I don't know where it was along the way that we get away from that. But that's still, y'all, how it really is. The one who disciplines you is the only one who can comfort you. And since that's the case, there is only one person to turn to in our sin. But still, we must run to him in our sin. And it's good to beg him for mercy. But you also need to realize you are where you need to be in the presence of the Lord, quietly moaning and groaning for his deliverance from whatever it is to correct your heart. And by the way, you can't make too big of a deal out of this. Notice verse 4, my iniquities have gone over my head. Now, we live in a culture that's really difficult for some people to get. Uh, we exaggerate a lot in the South. Everything is an exaggeration, and we do it as a way of humor. I don't care what it is. Uh, what's two becomes a thousand, you know, what's this big has become this big and, and on and on and on and on it goes, right? We exaggerate everything. It's the way of carols. Audrey and I are professionals at exaggerating everything, right? doesn't matter what it is. You do realize you cannot over-exaggerate the terribleness of your situation if you're in sin. That can't be over-exaggerated. So in other words, the, the words that David is choosing here are very wise words because they have literally gone over his head. They are a weight in the second part of verse 4 that I cannot carry. It's simply too heavy for me. In regard to your own sin, have you come to the point where you've realized you, you, it's really too heavy for you to carry? But yet what do we do? We pick up all the emotional turmoil that goes in our hearts because we know it's wrong. It's not been settled. And we just lug that around all day long, not realizing you, you really can't carry this. I know you want to try to manage this and put a Band-Aid on this, but you really cannot carry it. It is too heavy for you. In fact, it was, it's so heavy that there's only one who could carry it. And Rob talked about him this morning in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He's the only one that could carry it. And yet we continue to carry this. But David, in his wisdom, knows I can't do this. I cannot carry this weight. They have gone over the top of my head. And then verse 18 is, to me, probably the statement that hits home the most for me I confess my iniquity. I'm full of anxiety because of my sin. Do you find it interesting, and I did, and I'm still pondering this, that even after confession, there's still anxiety? I wonder sometimes if we don't take advantage of the goodness of God in the gospel. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you all in righteousness. And we say that and just go walking right out the door. I just wonder if we understand the seriousness of sin and are willing to wrestle with it, 
at great length, understanding the offense every sin is against our holy Creator and allowing it to do what it needs to do in our own hearts and lives before we truly repent from that. David's not flippant. I confess it, yet I'm full of anxiety because of it. He still bears the weight, right? And he still waits. Look at 21 and 22. Do not forsake me. Do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my deliverer. It's as if David's not going anywhere until he understands in his heart that God has delivered him. And he's just going to stay. All that to say is this, how are you in your wrestling against sin? Where are you? Notice verse 0. Psalm of David for a memorial. If you have the King James, it gets it better. It translates that for remembrance. Here's a question that I'm still wrestling with. What does David want us to remember? He wrote the whole Psalms as a reminder. What does he want us to remember? Does he want us to remember the ugliness of sin? I think you can make the case for that. Does he want us to remember the emotional trauma and spiritual trauma that sin causes in our life? That'd be a really good thing to remember. I was thinking about that. If I could write myself a letter when I'm in the midst of sin and all the suffering spiritually that it brings, if I could write myself a letter, perhaps I could read that letter before I go and do that thing again to remind myself, are you really going to do this one thing that makes you so sick on the inside you don't even want to get out of bed? Does he want us to remember that God is a God of wrath? Does he want us to remember that God is a God of deliverance? Well, I mean, y'all could say, well, he wants us to remember it all, and certainly he does. But he did write this for a particular purpose. That I don't know, but I do trust that the Spirit of God will deal with you with Psalms 38 exactly how the Lord wants to deal with your heart. Because I know how it's dealt with mine, and I come back to what I said earlier. I'm ashamed at how healthy I'm able to maintain when I know I've got things in my life that shouldn't be there. I'm just ashamed at how well I make it and keep going and not allow the damage to be done on the inside so the healing can be done on the inside. Questions?